Hello, and welcome to the Real Weird Podcast for October 1st. A swing of the knife on Proto Slashers. Hey everyone. So, if you've been following on Twitter or Instagram, you know what the score is here, but in case you don't, this is the first of the month-long marathon Real Weird Podcast 31 Days of Halloween. I have recorded these all in advance, and I will be uploading these every day for the next month. So I hope you'll all stick around, because I'm hoping that even if you're a horror junkie like me, I can turn you on to some ones that you might not have heard of before and may or may not enjoy. So today, we're going to be discussing what is in what I see as five great movies that really influenced the later classic slasher subgenre. All of them predate what film scholars uh, generally considered to be the golden age of slashers, that is 1978 to 1940, t- 1978 to 1984. Sorry about that. Uh, so yeah, for those that don't know why, well, it's the three big franchises. You had Halloween in 1978, you had Friday the 13th in 1980, and then four years after that, you had 1984 with A Nightmare on Elm Street. But yeah, all of them predate this. Uh, but they all have recognizable influences on the subgenre. In the case of Texas Chainsaw Massacre, they sometimes get lumped in. So first we'll be discussing the origins of slashers themselves, and then we'll get into a discussion and review of uh, the five that I've picked today. So I guess I'll start with talking about the overall theme. Uh, Probably don't need to tell anyone this, but the appeal of seeing humans inflict violence on each other for entertainment purposes. Sadly, it's been noticeable as far back as ancient Rome, although combat sports like wrestling and boxing, not to mention things like archery, although that's more a combat simulation than anything else, but they've all been around for most of recorded history. Around the turn of the century, such stories became far more marketable due to new technology like the printing press, radio, and silent film. In particular in France, and I'm probably going to butcher this pronunciation, but this is just what I could find, the Grand Guignol Theatre in France, in Paris specifically, was renowned for the shocking, visceral violence depicted in its plays. They were known to use a lot of what we'd call special effects, such as fake blood, and the theater's interior was very eerie to begin with because it was just a converted chapel. So... So the theater eventually became known for short, violent plays that at some point got so horrific that some audience members passed out or vomited and had to be escorted out. The theater, under the direction of Max Moret from 1898 to 1914, especially played this up. And I don't know if anyone here has heard of the director, William Castle, but he did a lot of gimmicks when marketing his movies. Uh, sometimes the trailers wouldn't even have a lot of footage from the movie, but a lot of them was like, hi, I'm William Castle, I made this movie, I want to talk to you about it. And usually you throw in some like weird marketing gimmick to get everyone hyped up for it. So Max Moray did this, uh, you, you know, using the limitations of the time, and he actually advertised that he was hiring at least two doctors to be on standby for patrons that passed out from shock, and apparently there was an average of two people a night passing out from shock from watching these plays. So you can get some idea. I mean, granted, this was the early 1900s, so, you know, uh, people were probably a lot more easily shocked by the entertainment back then. 
But most of the earlier forms of slasher film and horror fiction came as a result of adapting uh, mystery and crime literature. Early films such as The Bat, which which I can heartily recommend the 50s remake starring Vincent Price. It's wonderful, even by modern standards. It's very, very funny as well. And I'm just a sucker for Vincent Price anyway. (laughs) But what it is is that it has a group of guests being menaced by a masked killer stuck in an isolated mansion. But this was not originally a horror novel. It was a mystery novel called The Circular Staircase. Uh, Crime writer Edgar Wallace, who... I've heard about mostly because, as I've mentioned, I love Jalo and a lot of Edgar Wallace movies, a lot of Edgar Wallace books, sorry, and his stage plays were adapted as Jalo. But he made a stage play called The Terror, which was adapted into 1928 into a movie of the same name, and it was the second ever talkie, as they were called, a sound film made by Warner Brothers. The Cat and the Canary by John Willard was adapted for the screen during the silent film era, J.B. Priestley's The Old Dark House as well. In all cases, they had a sort of, you know, madman on the loose storyline. Typically had some sort of sins of the father plot catalyst. You know, we've seen that, especially in a lot of, like, the knockoff slashers that came in that period, like, immediately after either Halloween or Friday the 13th. But a lot of them also had uh, lengthy killer POV shots, which is especially common in the Jalo films again. Uh, you're a slasher fan like me, you might recognize it pretty easily from Halloween. As far as plot lines that are common, there was also an early psychological thriller called 13 Women. Follows a sorority whose members are kind of driven to pity, are kind of pitted against each other by a vengeful peer who's crossing out their yearbook pictures. Those who have seen either Prom Night or Graduation Day might recognize that plot device. The Spiral Staircase, not to be confused with The Circular Staircase, based on a book called Some Must Watch by Ethel White, featured a woman trying to survive against a group of black-gloved killers, there was an early, and it was an early user of what we would call jump scares. Movies like The Scarlet Claw and The Leopard Man also used special editing techniques to like instill the idea of repeated strikes to help play up the viciousness. You know, if you see, like, a knife coming down and they just replay that over and over again, intercut with, like, you know, the victim trying to, like, shield their face or their vitals, it it gives the whole thing a bit more of a brutal feel to it. It was an early user of that. Uh, And then There Were None also had a setting that would become commonplace. A group of people with sort of secret pasts are on an island invited by an anonymous... uh, Know, an anonymous host, and they're killed off one by one, and each kill is kind of uh, thematic to the nursery rhyme that the uh, novel originally takes its name from. It's a nursery rhyme, and each of the kills mirrors a verse from it, which was a common trope in later slashers. Vengeful murder, a tendency the, for the victims to be kind of youthful, and also, you know, just the creative kills. Uh, I've kind of joked with a friend of mine that a slasher can be any horror movie where the killer uses something other than a gun. It doesn't necessarily need to be a cutting weapon. But before we got to the slashers proper, we got many great psychological thrillers. And funnily enough, in 1960, we got two within the same year. They really captured the same eerie tone and adhered to the same format. 
though there was a far greater emphasis on psychological aspects of the genre. We'll start with probably the most famous thriller of all time, and probably one of the most famous movies of all time, period. Psycho, by Alfred Hitchcock, starring Janet Leigh, Vera Miles, John Gavin, Martin Balsam, and of course, Anthony Perkins. So as far as Psycho's concerned, I'm not going to linger on it, because quite frankly, what can I say that hasn't been said a million times? Uh, honestly, this is one of the lists, like, top of the list of movies I wish I could wipe from my memory and go into it knowing nothing about it, seeing completely blind. I didn't actually see it in full until I took a film studies course as a high school elective, but I already knew basically the whole movie. It's one of the most famous, and that shower scene has got to be one of the most, you know, infamous of all in the history of movies. It's got to be one of the most parodied. Like, the closest... I ever got to a blind reaction actually came in college. I was briefly I was briefly dating an exchange student named Kaede, and she had never even heard about it. So I got to see a person react to it with it being a completely blank slate opinion and it was it was wonderful. But, uh so those so for those that don't know, it's based off of the book of the same name by Robert Block, loosely based on Wisconsin's favorite Ed Gein. Uh, side note, but I kind of find this funny. Ed Gein is loosely the inspiration for Leatherface, Buffalo Bill from Silence of the Lambs, and, you know, obviously, you know, uh, Norman Bates. It's kind of funny to me, though, that in is that he could be argued that he's an inspiration for these characters, but he's not technically a serial killer. Because as far as I can tell, he was only convicted of one murder, and there was only evidence leading him to one other, although he wasn't convicted of that one. And all the rest uh, were just bodies that he snatched up. So he's not even technically a serial killer. But the funny thing is, he was arrested two years before the book was published, but Block had already nearly finished when he got news of the arrest. And he was apparently rather surprised when Gein's personal life was revealed, because, you know, he had as well a domineering almost religious fanatic of a mother that, like, really stunted his social life. And he said that he, quote, discovered how closely the imaginary character I'd created resembled the real Ed Gein, both in overt act and apparent motivation. And it's a weird coincidence that this happened, given the fact that Block was living fairly close to Gein's hometown of Plainfield. It's only, like, 35 miles, actually. Anyway, I... Also wanted to bring up this point, despite the fame and despite the fact that this film is considered to be Hitchcock's best by a lot of critics now, that it's his most famous, most successful, and hunts so many best movies of all timeless. It's interesting to note that Paramount didn't even want him to make it, giving excuses of a lack of funds, but it was also the fact that the executives kind of found the book it was based on completely repulsive. Hitchcock countered by asking for a stake in the film's negative, and he'd get it done quick and cheap with his TV crew, uh, shooting it with Universal if Paramount would distribute, despite some naysaying the project ended up going forward, obviously. Now, Joe Stefano was the screenwriter. He made a handful of changes to the... uh, uh, He he rewrote it so that uh, some of the more, say, technically difficult stuff for more shocking stuff in the book was worked around. The film would be more functional. 
And to be fair to the executives, the level of violence in the novel was far greater than it was in the movie. I mean, to give an example, the shower scene, uh, Marion wasn't just stabbed at that, she was straight up beheaded. Norman is also more overtly unstable. He's kind of, uh, he's kind of like chubby and middle-aged. His background refers a lot to both the occult and to uh, pornographic materials. Stefano changed that to make Norman more sympathetic to you know that late fifties, early sixties audience. Sam and Lila had their uh, sort of you know budding relationship cut from the movie, as Stefano felt it made the two characters feel cheapened. I should mention that they are that they apparently did get married in Psycho 2, which is actually pretty good. But that was cut from the book and was well, not cut from the book. It's in the book, but it didn't make it to the movie because Joe Stefano didn't like that. And Sam was not the uh person who gives the whole little denouement at the end about Norman's pathology in the film. And I gotta say, frankly, the fact that Joe Stefano only worked on one screenplay before this, I think he did an amazing job. And I mean, you know, at the time it feels so tame today, but it's funny to hear the reactions of people at the time. Critical reactions were not universally great, but the audiences, they loved it. And, like, part of that was also just, you know, Hitchcock was seeing those low-budget, like, you know, low-brow grindhouse exploitation films. And And he wanted to see how much of it he could just bring into the mainstream. And he got it done. I mean, I mean, for a movie at the time, though, the violence was emphasized well with editing to the point where many people were convinced that you actually see the knife actually pierce flesh during the shower scene. You never do. But, you know, it's one of those... It's all suggested. It's kind of like Texas Chainsaw in that way. People are convinced that movie's a lot gorier than it actually is. But... As well as, like, I mean, Janet Lee's in her underwear for like half the half of her scenes, so the amount of like you know nudity and sexuality is especially unusual for such a big studio film at the time. I mean, it's the nudity in the shower scene even isn't explicit for the audience, but it was a shocking degree for the time. So much so that despite Janet Lee's insistence, many later claimed that Hitchcock actually brought in a Playboy model as a body double. It's wonderfully performed and designed, and the score by Bernard Herrmann is amazing, and I found it interesting that the shower scene was originally meant to be done without music. Hitchcock didn't really like it that way, so he uh, just looked at the score that Bernard Herrmann made for it anyway. <laughs> yeah, Herrmann was basically like, here, man, you, you don't have to use this, but feel free to. And, I mean, later he gave Herman, he gave Bernard Herrmann a massive bonus, because he was like, a third of this movie is you, is what he basically said to him. So yeah, Psycho, one of the most famous movies of all time. I'd agree with anyone saying that it's one of the best of all time. And look, I know that everyone probably knows the twist if you know a thing about movies. But if you haven't seen it, come on, man, what the fuck? Go watch it. <laughs> I promise you it's still worth, it's still worth your time anyway. I have always felt that Peeping Tom and Eight and a Half say everything that can be said about filmmaking, about the process of dealing with film, the objectivity and the subjectivity of it, and the confusion between the two. Eight and a Half captures the glamour and enjoyment of filmmaking, 
while Peeping Tom shows the aggression of it, how the camera violates. From studying them, you can discover everything about people who make films, or at least people who express themselves through films. Such was the assessment of this next film by Martin Scorsese himself, a longtime admirer of the director Michael Powell. Yes, I am talking about Peeping Tom. This was released the same year as Psycho, actually, and it deals with similar subject matter, also has a mild-mannered serial killer as a major character, some serious parental issues in a leading role. In this case, though, it's his father, not his mother. However, where Psycho became one of its director's most famous and successful movies, Peeping Tom bombed, was reviled by critics, and effectively was the end of Powell's career in the United Kingdom. However, British Film Institute in 1999 and Time Out Magazine in 2017 both had Peeping Tom on their lists of greatest British films of all time, in 78th and 27th place, respectively. The director himself kind of, you know, bitterly bitterly noted in his autobiography, I make a film that nobody wants to see, and then 30 years later, everyone has either seen it or wants to see it. It's pretty. It's a pretty apt summary, to be perfectly honest. I feel bad for him. So, just to give a general synopsis of the film, we follow the exploits of a soft-spoken young man named Mark Lewis, who makes his living as a cameraman for a local studio and taking modeling pictures to sell to a local bookseller. And in his spare time, he kills beautiful women and records their dying expressions with his film camera. As I mentioned earlier, Mark, like Norman, has serious psychological baggage from his parents, where, again, where in Norman's case it was an overbearing, clingy mother, Mark's father is the culprit here. He was overbearing in a much different way. Mark was often made to be the guinea pig for his father's experiments, which revolved around studying fear and the effects it had on the nervous system. Mark was subjected to this and became obsessed with fears in his own way as he grew up, as well as become so socially inept that he hardly gets out at all. On a technical level, the movie is wonderfully quaint with its beautiful technicolor, well-constructed sets, the beautiful matte paintings, the brilliant cinematography. The editing and camera work become very frantic during the murder scenes to really help uh, emphasize the panic and fear going on and being felt by the Oh, sorry. Being felt by the characters in the setting. And honestly, the score itself is really underrated. It is composed by Brian Easdale, a frequent collaborator of Powell and Pressburger, who are one of the most famous, you know, filmmaking duos in history. And mostly performed by Australian virtuoso pianist Gordon Watson. I'll leave it to you, listener, to decide for yourselves. The streaming service Tubi has it available. Hopefully Criterion Collection can get the rights to it back from Canal and we can get a Blu-ray release soon. I wasn't really sure how I was going to wrap this up. So I guess for now, I'll just leave it to you. I'll just leave you with this uh, line from Roger Ebert in his 1999 review of the film for his Great Films series. He states that, and I quote, The movies make us into voyeurs. We sit in the dark, watching other people's lives. It's the bargain the cinema strikes with us, although most films are too well-behaved to mention it. 
All right, next up, we're going to be jumping ahead a few years to 1965, and we are talking about Repulsion, directed by Roman Polanski. Yes, I know the guy's a creep, but this was made years before that happened, so roll with it. We have this manicurist named Carol living in an apartment in London with her sister Helen, and when you watch it, you might be wondering why I included this with it, because it doesn't seem to be very violent at all. It doesn't seem to have any of that overt horror. And you'd be right. Most of the horror here comes from a psychological aspect. Carol has this suitor named Colin and has no interest in him. Helen has a boyfriend named Michael, who is a married man, although it's never, and it's never explicitly stated why she has such a vicious response to him. And by that I mean Carol to, well, to Michael. But there are several things, I won't spoil what, you could point to in the movie to suggest that Carol was, you know, sexually abused either by an older male relative when she was a child or by someone else, possibly even Michael, relatively recently. At any rate, Carol's main driving force through the movie is just this sense of isolation, which is compounded by the fact she's living in London where she doesn't really speak the language. And at any rate... And it's also just there's a general disgust and disinterest she displays with anything even remotely sexual. She hears her sister and Michael having sex one night, and it's not just like... um, the, The expression and the action she gives is less annoyance and more, I guess, anxiety. Like, she's not... She seems genuinely disturbed hearing it, not just, you know, in like a, come on, I'm trying to sleep here kind of way. In addition to two moments when she, well, you know, spoiler alert here, uh, kills a couple of men who get a little too pushy with their propositions, she also has this recurring nightmare or hallucination where a man breaks into her room. In one case, the hallucination also includes the man, you know, attempting to rape her. Well, the sexual abuse is commonly used as an explanation. It's also possible that, you know, Carol could be, you know, schizophrenic, or at least as, or at least schizophrenic as it would appear to someone in the 1960s. Uh, Polanski himself said that a woman he and the screenwriter Gerard Brock were mutual friends with, he found out later that she suffered from schizophrenic delusions, and that was the inspiration for the character of Carol. It may help to explain why she seems so disinterested in everything to begin with. In addition, the movie itself has a slow-pacing, subtle musical score that, when combined with the lighting, creates this sort of dream-like atmosphere, almost. And the fact that it mostly takes place in a single apartment with, like, a handful of scenes at her, you know, at the salon that she works at, it's it's really claustrophobic. I'd assume that uh, Polanski had some influence from Hitchcock, but maybe even more even from the more surrealist directors like Louise Buñuel or Jean-Luc Godard, you're meant to feel, you're kind of meant to be dragged into the anxiety a little bit. It's a bit of a reach for being a proto-slasher, but I'd argue that the aspect where the killer's psychology is emphasized is common in some later slashers, especially uh, where the killer is motivated by some you know, perceived slight. Uh, My Bloody Valentine, uh, Prom Night, Terror Train, etc., I do actually, 
uh, remember watching this documentary on horror movies and some other movies that weren't horror that were banned in the UK during the so-called video nasties, moral panic in the 80s. And one of the hosts brought up The Driller Killer, which was the uh, first, well, feature-length non-pornographic film. First of that kind of movie made by a rather famous director, Abel Ferrara. And he said that it's far more restrained than the marketing would have given it away. It has more to do with Polanski. It has more in common with Polanski's repulsion than, you know, Last House on the Left or something. So I suppose that just because this is considered, you know, a masterpiece and later slashers are generally seen as trashy by most, the influence shouldn't be ignored. Uh, If you can get your hands on a good copy, give it a watch. I myself have the uh, Criterion Blu-ray release, so a whole bunch of other goodies if you're a film nerd as well. Uh, Next, we're moving on to uh, Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Uh, Yes, Toby Hooper's 1974 horror classic. I will admit, the first time I watched this, I was 13 years old. I was kind of let down. People told me it was like, you know, this really gory really fucking nasty movie. And I guess it, I guess I was just expecting the gore to be a lot higher than it actually is. I guess it's just the whole change, chainsaw shtick. I think it actually took until 99 for the film to be released in the UK because the BBFC kept refusing to give it a certificate for home release. That was the level of reputation that it had. I mean, it's like Psycho in that way. The film's execution and you know, suggestive ability is good enough to make the violence seem far more gruesome than it actually is. So yeah, overall synopsis should be fairly familiar to any fans of later slashers. A group of friends visit an old homestead in rural Texas where they end up being menaced by a cannibalistic family called, called the Sawyers, we later find out. Uh, the iconic Leatherface is a member, obviously. And what I find most interesting about the film is that the tension almost entirely comes from the locations. You know, the acting the cinem- and the acting in the cinematography. You know, you feel you're out in the middle of nowhere because you basically are. I, I actually remember uh, watching the movie X when that came out, and it, I had very much that same feel. It's also in Texas, but yeah, just the way the film is executed, it gives that sense of isolation. You're out in the middle of nowhere, and there's some fucking crazy people just over the hill that are ready to chop you up and eat you. Uh, The film is almost entirely devoid of any sort of, like, neat plot structure. It's the thing I kind of liked about some Italian horror movies, at least the good ones, um, and some of Rob Zombie's better films, especially, like, you know, Devil's Rejects and House of a Thousand Corpses. Like, there's a premise... And then things just kind of happen. <laughs> you know what I mean? If you've seen the movie, you know what I mean. But the way, I, the way I put it to a friend one time is that the way the film is structured and set up and shot, it almost feels like those crazy that the crazy fucking family in the movie, it almost feels like they're the ones making the movie. That and the grainy texture of the film gives it that grungy uh, sort of you know, grindhouse feel, and it was made for, I think, an amount that would be less than a million dollars today. Uh, So for those that don't mind, I'm going to go into a bit of analysis as far as the themes go. Um, 
come back in like five minutes if that's going to bore you, because <laughs> I know it's not everyone's thing. I should mention I have seen a few other Toby Hooper films, and they all kind of share this theme of being sort of uh, perversions of the American dream, if you want to put it that way. Like Poltergeist, the whole conflict is fueled by land development on top of an Indian burial ground. You know, you're disturbing the native inhabitants' final rest in order to get that, you know, white picket fence and and some big lawn and all that. Eaten Alive, which we'll be talking about in a few days, the killer is actually a veteran and a business owner. They're seen dancing to a song, extolling the virtues of the, you know, classical, you know, Western film cowboy. Texas Chainsaw 2, which, again, we'll be talking about, one of the family, while hiding out in an abandoned amusement park, goes on this rant, similar to any you've ever heard, about how hard it is for a small business owner, what with all the taxes and the regulations and whatnot. A fair number of critics have pointed out that the movie, this movie in particular, came out amidst a great period of upheaval in American society, where between you know Vietnam and Watergate and just a general sort of disillusionment with the U.S.'s traditional image, where everyone was kind of, you know, rolling their eyes at power structures now. Again, as with Eaten Alive and another Toby Hooper slasher, The Fun House, the killer is, in a way, the most complex character, or at least the center of sympathy, or at least interest. Leatherface is a killer, of course, but he seems to be sort of bullied by his brothers, hiding his face with the iconic, you know, mask of human skin to conceal, likely conceal some deformity. With the father being the cliche breadwinner, the brother being the younger brother being the rebellious teen, Leatherface is almost bullied into this role of being the cliched, you know, put upon housewife for the dinner scene near the end of the movie. The Sawyers are sort of like a classic sitcom family presented in a very gross and transgressive way. Not to mention the political commentary lacking in the more modern reboots, sequels, and remakes. Uh, Robin Wood, a famous film scholar, he writes of the film characterizing the family as victims of, you know, capitalist industrialization. They lost their jobs at a slaughterhouse due to the automation and the technical advancements. So there's no need for, you know, the guy with the cattle gun, or in this case, the guy that would just take a hammer and just right on the head. And I mean, on the note of the slaughterhouses, the main conceit of the film was partially influenced by the director's just general disgust with industrial meat production. <laughs> you know, I'm not a vegan, I'm not even vegetarian, but yeah, I've I, I've considered giving up meat just because I've been seeing what goes on in those places. And I mean, part of the horror and cannibalism in general, not just in the movie, but in general, is that we have this, you know, natural fear of being eaten by other things, obviously. I've kind of joked that nature's two imperatives are get food and don't become someone else's food. But there's a visceral disgust to be found in the idea of humans being butchered and eaten in the way we do to pigs or cattle or whatever else. I mean, Guillermo del Toro, of all people, uh, you know, no shame to disturbing content. In fact, his movies are some of the few horror movies where I've actually seen children die. So yeah, he's willing. So yeah, he's definitely not squeamish. But even he has said that he gave up meat for a while after watching this for the first time. And I mean, yeah, like most of the horror classics, it's it's pretty tame by modern standards in terms of gore and violence, but the tension and the location and just the manic tone is more than enough to make up for that, especially 
and it's especially impressive it manages to still be you know scary in a classical sense because a lot of this happens in broad daylight so you know from the sunny sands of texas we are going north to a very famous uh actually canadian produced horror movie we have the original Black Christmas, not to be confused with either of the shitty remakes, one that came out in 2006 or the one that came out in 19. Okay, I'll be a little fair. The 06 one is at least, at least has some cool kills and is generally, genuinely kind of creepy at points, but it's still a step down. So yeah, starring Olivia Hussey in the main role. We also have horror regular John Saxon. Uh, some of you might know him best as Donald Thompson from Nightmare on Elm Street. And yes, we have Lois Lane, of all people. Yes, Margot Kidder is another one of the sorority sisters in here. Black Christmas takes place in the town of Bedford, and there's a sorority house who's being stalked by a lurking stranger who also harangues the girls with obscene phone calls. Now, I've said before that the best horror movies could be remade as dramas if you took the horror elements out, and Black Christmas is a prime example of this. Now we have the creative murder set pieces typical of the later slashers, but the bulk of the movie is focused on either characterization or investigating the last victim's disappearance. And we get these sequences of the killer lurking around the house and the attic unseen by the rest of the cast. It helps with the suspense, I feel, and the overall sense of dread you get from watching it. And more so than most other later slashers, the killer here is very purposefully mysterious. He's become known only as Billy, and his calls are nothing but incoherent babble and various voices, and just these bizarre, disgusting mouth noises. (laughs) Just sort of like... (laughs) I'm sorry to all my listeners. I did not... (laughs) I kind of just did that on a whim. Sorry to subject you to that. (laughs) But the first scene we hear the calls in, it's mostly just more run in the middle, you know, obscene phone call material. Hussey's character, Jess calls the other girls into the room and we get a tidbit that says he's been making these calls before. She just refers to him as the moaner before Kidder's character, Barb picks up the phone and just yells at him before hanging up. So yeah, we've already got some distinct personality traits in the first few minutes. Uh, Later, we see Jess having a very tense conversation with her boyfriend, Peter, um, because as we find out, she's pregnant and she's, she doesn't want to keep it. You know, this was the seventies and even more so than today. Abortion was a very hot topic, especially for, you know, college age girl. Uh, Barb, who's Margot Kidder's character also has some Uh, Moments where she adds the sense of comic relief, especially because she is just such a bitch at points. (laughs) And she just runs her mouth when she's had too much to drink. She gives this like weird story about this uh, species of turtle that, you know, when they made, they made for like three days straight. It's really weird. She pulls some funny prank on one of the guys at the uh, police station by giving him this. uh... (laughs) Okay, I'm sorry. I just have to say this. So like the way phones back in the day was that you had an exchange, which was the uh, sort of like operator that you went to. And then there was the number. And I won't say what it is because it's something you just have to see. But she gives the name as this sort of as this type of sex slang. 
And then Saxon's character just wonders why one of the other detectives is just laughing his head off, and he just shows him it. And then the guy who wrote it down was like, oh, I get it. It's something dirty, isn't it? And then, <laughs> and then one of the other detectives just starts laughing his ass off. He finally breaks and just starts, starts laughing out loud. And Saxon's just like, I don't think you could pick your nose without written instructions. <laughs> so, yeah, it's... So, yeah, Barb is just a... Like I said, she's a bitch, but it's in a way where she's kind of funny because of it. We get some nice misdirection as to the killer identities because of a phrase that comes up in one of the phone calls, some genuinely horrific murder scenes. I mean, the very first one, we just see this girl just get like this, oh God, just like, he basically just saran wrapped her head, for lack of a better term. We get, you know, for a number of killer camera moments, or seeing just seeing the killer's shadow, or getting these high angle shots that imply the killer is looking down on someone without it being explicit. I can't explain without killing the humor, but 52 minutes in is perhaps the funniest moment in the movie. As someone who's always been interested in true crime, is that we get a fairly lengthy sequence where we get to see the police trace the call. Because I was always wondered how a trace would work back in, you know, pre-cell phone ages. It's sort of intercut with the main story, though, so it keeps from getting stale, but we get to see this you know, big, lengthy process as to how they trace phone calls back in the day. Uh, Like I said, as as is common with more famous pieces of horror, it has moments that are very reflective of the time period. The characterization and general plot indirectly reference things like, you know, abortion, like I mentioned, campus rape, both of which were becoming far more common in public discourse in the 70s. And I should mention, if like a rape scene is going to be a deal-breaker for you, there isn't any. The rape is just mentioned offhand at the beginning, and it doesn't come up again. The Like I said, the abortion thing is mentioned a few times and contributes to a plot twist. Just discovers Peter's indignation over saying that, you know, she's not going to keep it, and it's not his decision, gnaws at him to the point where, you know, he fucks up and fails his piano recital. And uh, frankly, all I'm going to say is that, oh God, as someone who is like trying to learn how to play piano, seeing him just like destroy a piano was like one of the more horrifying things in the movie for me anyway. The tension continues, but yeah, sorry. So yeah, the tension continues through the rest of the movie and I'm not saying anymore because I think I'd spoil the plot. All I'll say is that it shares a lot in common with When a Stranger Calls. And going along that same vein, when the father of the first victim shows up to report her missing, he's kind of put off by, you know, the hippie decor in the sorority house, and especially Barb's attitude. But yeah, I kind of joked that like this, uh, Silent Night, Deadly Night Part 2, and Nightmare Before Christmas are, you know, perfect films for either Halloween or Christmas time. Because, you know, they're in that weird thing where they're, you know, they're Christmas time, but they also have a lot of scary elements. And yeah, that's about all for today. In summary, these are five films I think anyone who is into slashers should check out, as the influence, whether deliberate or not, definitely worked its way into the subgenre. 
I hope you can all forgive me because I think looking at the timing. Oh no. Actually, I was I was thinking that this was going to be a lot longer than it was. I think this was the longest episode since I talked about fear and loathing. Anyway, join me for tomorrow as we visit upon a double feature by Stuart Gordon, uh, Reanimator and From Beyond. The former is the former is one of my favorite movies ever, which is funny because originally I just picked it up at a sale at Barnes and Noble, and I love it so much that I have picked up the Arrow Video Blu-ray. Take care, and I will see you tomorrow. Goodbye.